El Fanboy, episode 28. Hi, everybody. Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 28th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. How the hell's everyone doing today? I uh, hope you guys are doing well everywhere, especially I'm thinking this morning about Mr. Nathan Lee Ivy. He lives in Texas. Nathan, if you're listening to this, I want you to know that I'm thinking about you. I know that you guys are going through some shit right now with Hurricane Harvey. I hope you and your loved ones are all safe and sound. Uh, and I, yeah, I just, I hope everyone's doing well. It's a crazy time to be alive these days. Um, and in the entertainment world, I mean, what the hell's going on? Whoever put together the slates for all the, you know, all the different studios as they were putting together their slates for this summer, what the hell happened? We were doing so well. And then there's just been this huge drop off. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about this may be the best summer movie season ever. With you know so many high caliber films coming out that I could barely keep up, and then now here we are for like two or three weeks straight with Dick coming out. There's nothing. There's been hardly anything of interest, and it's like I'm <laughs> the big Labor Day new release that's coming up this weekend that I would normally maybe try to like talk to you about and the reviews and see how we feel about it. I've never even heard of it. It's called Tulip Fever. Nothing against anyone who's excited about tulip fever, but what's going on here? We're we're going on weeks and weeks of just basically these sort of low-budget, sort of under-the-radar movies. None of the major studios staked a claim to the end of August, apparently, and even Labor Day weekend they just kind of are tapping out on. I mean, for all intents and purposes, there's nothing to look forward to until a week from Labor Day, the following weekend, when Stephen King's It comes out. Uh, which looks like it's going to have like a $60 million opening because everyone is all sort of backed up. You know, there is an audience out there that wants to get out to the movies. They just haven't had any reason to in a couple of weeks. Um, so, you know, we're going to get more into some full-blown box office analysis in just a little bit. But for now, in terms of what I've been up to uh, in the entertainment realm, I mean, honestly, I haven't made it to a theater to see a movie now in a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, kind of like coincidentally, because there's nothing to watch. And with my wife's rehearsal schedule, it's hard for me to get out at night to go catch a movie, which is usually when I go to screenings or when I try to catch a flick. You know, she's rehearsing hardcore for her production of Cabaret. So I got to be home with the kitties. So I've been taking care of business uh, here at home. I've been writing, I've been editing, I've been working on this special thing that I've been talking to you guys now for about over a week, and I'm sorry that I blue-balled you guys. I was going to have it ready on Friday, and then life happened, but it is coming later this week. For anyone who listened to my appearance on the Medium Popcorn podcast, which went up yesterday, uh, it was a pretty special one because... Uh, it was a reunion of sorts. Uh, Brandon, the host, brought me on with Joseph Jammer Medina, my, uh, you know, the the other, you know, w- one of the other Lost Fanboys team members. I can't say other half because it was three of us there for a long time. For those of you who listen to Lost Fanboys, you know, it was Kelvin, it was Jammer, and it was I. 
Then they got rid of Kelvin, and we weren't even allowed to mention that. Then it was just Jammer and I. Then they got rid of me, so now I am L fanboy. But um, anyway, so you know, Jammer and I haven't spoken in a while. You know, we text once in a while, and he's a good dude, and we actually have stuff that we want to work on together uh, beyond the realm of film blogging. But uh, this was the first time we got to just sort of like lock horns and talk some DC stuff, like the good old days. Um, so I want to just thank Brandon. If you're listening, thank you for, for, for having us on your show. And thanks for thinking of us as the people that, you know, you want to have these DC discussions with. Because, uh, you know, I guess, I guess Jammer and I have gotten into it quite a bit over the year, uh, <laughs> over the year that we were together. Um but yeah, so what? So all right. So what I was getting to was, on that podcast, I mentioned what the thesis for this special event I'm planning for you guys is, and essentially, I'm just going to tell you the title of it. I don't want to get too much further into it because I kind of want to surprise you. But essentially, later this week, you you guys are going to see something in in the podcast feed called El Fanboy Presents: The Curious Case of Benjamin Affleck. I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, it has to do with DC, it has to do with Affleck, it has to do with insider stuff I've been told, it has to do with just analyzing the incredible ups and downs of this tumultuous relationship between an A-lister like Affleck and the DC Extended Universe. So just keep an eye out for that. I, I, I'm no longer going to say what day so that I don't get into trouble like I did last week, but it's going to drop this week, all right? Um, last night, if my, if I sound a little hoarse today, it's cause I was at city field with my wife and, uh, we were watching, uh, we went to go see Lady Gaga. Uh, man, that, that is one talented artist right there. Uh, you know, I've been playing her songs for years cause I'm a DJ as my, uh, my quote unquote day job. But, uh, you know, I always assumed she would put on a pretty good show because, she seems to have a knack for theatricality, and man, she just, it, it was, it was just, it was a great show. Great songs, great intimate sort of storytelling she was doing there on the stage. There was pyro, there was fire, there was backup dancers, costume changes, moving stages. You know, she, she really put on one hell of a show, and for me, I guess, the big softy in me, the, the big thrill of it was seeing my wife just kind of jumping up and down and screaming like a teenager because she's obsessed with Gaga, she dressed like a total maniac <laughs> to be like one of Gaga's uh, little monsters, which is what she calls her hardcore fans. And seeing how happy it made her, just, you know, last night was a really, really great night. Um, and really, you know, the only other major sort of bit of entertainment that I've gotten to consume is television. And that's in the form of I wrapped up Netflix's Ozark. And I saw the season finale of Game of Thrones on Sunday. Holy smokes, Game of Thrones. I don't know how the hell I am expected to wait a year and a half uh, or so to see how, you know, what happens next. That was just when, uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to get into spoilers just in case because it is Tuesday. Maybe some of you haven't seen it yet. But let me just say, Wow. To the people running Game of Thrones, I I bow down to you. Uh, this season was great. I, I don't get what some of the hate is. I know uh, the Cartoon Network Adult Swim recently like took a jab at at the series. 
saying that basically the writing has been dead since 2016. I'm assuming they don't like where the showrunners have taken the series now that they're going beyond the books, now that they caught up with the books and have passed them. But I, I have no complaints, really. Uh, this season was just stellar. Every episode felt like a, like a movie. And that's just, you know, if that's not one of the greatest television series ever, then I don't know what is. But, um, and Ozark, man, I hope it comes back. I really do. I really, I, I dug it. You know, I, I, I can't go with the people who say it's like uh, Breaking Bad, like, you know, it's a Breaking Bad level. Yeah, it's Breaking Bad in terms of, all right, here you have like an average family getting involved in the drug trade or whatever, you're falling into the criminal underworld. But, you know, aside from that, you know, Breaking Bad is still head and shoulders better than Ozark. Uh, but that said, I really enjoyed it. And I always love me some Jason Bateman. Um, I think he's great in everything he does. And it's kind of cool to see him in something darker and, and more dramatic. But, um, yeah, really, I, I have not been much of a digester of entertainment uh, since last week. Just been kind of busy, been trying to just enjoy the summer and it looks like it was that was a smart idea on my part because now the weather up here in New York is getting pretty uh autumnal pretty damn quickly today it was freezing in my room we had to close the windows this morning it's getting cold and gray out there and uh, I think I think this summer may be in our rear view mirror at this point and that's that's pretty sad but um all right, you know what? I think I'm done yammering on and on here. Let's get into the week's news. For this week, I am going to forego the usual uh, lengthy analysis of the box office because there really isn't a lot to, to discuss here. It was a very ho-hum weekend. We're talking 16-year uh, lows here. It hasn't. It, this past weekend was the lowest since like late September 2001, when everyone was still sort of shocked by the tragedy of September 11th. So no one was going to the theaters. Yeah, th 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 this weekend box office is the lowest since then. Uh, so just real quick, in first place was The Hitman's Bodyguard at $10.2 followed by Annabelle Creation hanging in there, you know, once again staying in the number two slot with $7.6 Uh New Arrival Leap, the animated film, uh, opened to $4.7 By the way, I'm probably going to get stuck seeing that later today because it's a cartoon and it's about dancing, so my wife and my daughter are basically demanding that we watch it, even though it does not fit my stringent Rotten Tomatoes criteria. Um, then number four was Wind River. No idea. Number five is Logan Lucky with 4.2 mil. So, you know, listen, it was a quiet weekend. The, uh, the other big new release was Birth of the Dragon, and that opened in eighth place uh, with 2.7 mil. Um... And that's really kind of it. There's not there's not a lot to talk about. It was a sad weekend at the box office. And I bet you right now there's a bunch of studios who are saying, well, next year we got to open something big at the end of August to try to capitalize on how quiet things get over here. This is just insane. Um, but yeah, so unbelievable what happened last week. I, I wrap up the podcast, I upload it for you guys to enjoy, and immediately following that, 
we began a very interesting news cycle. Um, basically, basically, later in the day, last Tuesday, they announced that Todd Phillips would be co-writing and directing a Joker origin film with Martin Scorsese attached to produce it. Uh, that it would be set in the 80s and that it would quote unquote be part of like a new DC banner that would not necessarily be connected to the DC extended universe. They're planning to make some films that that just kind of tell unique stories and and take unique angles that basically set it beyond the DCEU. Um, and then the following day, I'm like, I'm getting PTSD here, like I said on Twitter. The following day, we find out that they're also making a Joker Harley Quinn movie, um, like some sort of mad love, sort of like dark, uh, uh, dark, violent, romantic type movie. It seems to be the the running sort of theory on that. Uh, it'd be interesting if it was like Natural Born Killers with um, Juliette Lewis and uh, what's his name, Woody Harrelson. But either way, there uh, you know that came out the very next day, and then since then, there's been all this back and forth about whether or not Gotham City Sirens is off the off the boards. I say it is. Uh, Jeff Snyder uh, of Tracking Board, who's a very you know, reputable writer, says absolutely that it is gone. But then you got Mark Hughes, who I also tend to trust, over at Forbes, saying that it is still in development. So for those keeping track, uh, that would mean that there are essentially three different uh, films that may or may not include the Joker in development right now. You have the Joker origin, you have you know by Todd Phillips, you have Joker Harley Quinn, you have Gotham City Sirens, you have Suicide Squad Two, um, all in development, and they're all basically like offshoots. I mean, aside from the Todd Phillips Joker, you know, three of them are offshoots of Suicide Squad. Um, which in and of itself was a polarizing film. And there's just like, I don't even know where to begin here. Uh, let's start with, with the Joker origin situation. I, uh, oh man, I, I gotta hope that somebody misheard something, uh, that DC is not already trying to splinter off and make like multiverse movies or else world tales. Like guys, can you just get the DCEU fully on track before you start thinking about this shit. I know you're looking over at what Fox did and it's working nicely for them because Deadpool and Logan seem to be set outside of the main continuity and they kind of like cherry pick what things they're going to keep in them. Like, I know you see that that's working for them, but guys, Fox first spent 17 years building a, a likable brand that people sort of gravitate towards and at least know what's going on. The DCEU is still sort of trying to, you know, uh, build on the momentum created by Wonder Woman after several years of films that were polarizing and divisive. And this has nothing to do with my opinion. This isn't me trying to tell you how to feel about Man of Steel or about Batman v Superman or about Suicide Squad. There are facts. There are measurable facts and, and there's data and stats that the first three DCEU movies left people sort of split and 
sort of upset and sort of confused and that they were not these overriding huge success stories. And finally, they have Wonder Woman. So you'd think, okay, let's build from Wonder Woman. Let's get the rest of our slate on track. Let's look at those scripts. Let's make sure everything meets the sort of Wonder Woman level of care and quality. Let's move away from things that didn't work in the past and move towards what's working now. Uh, but now I'm hearing all this stuff, all these spinoffs, all and, and, and this freaking movie, it, it doesn't even take place in the DCEU that stars the Joker. How do you make a Joker movie without Batman? And if you're going to have Batman, how are you going to have a Batman that's different than Ben Affleck's Batman? Meanwhile, we don't even know if Ben Affleck's going to really be around for the, for future Batman appearances. It's just, can we just get our affairs in order first before we start looking to expand the canvas? Can we please just like hold our fucking horses and have some discipline here? Like I said on Medium Popcorn yesterday, um, my only hope is that this is like a bad game of telephone where something got lost in translation and that a vital piece of the puzzle is missing and that the piece is that All these films are quote-unquote in development, but they're not planning to make all of them. That they're essentially going to see which script comes together in the best fashion, what team puts together the best overall package, and they say, okay, this is the one we're going to greenlight. It's very similar to what HBO is doing with Game of Thrones right now, where they have, depending on who you trust, they have between four and five uh, different spinoffs of Game of Thrones in development because they know the Game of Thrones is ending after season eight, and there's this huge appetite out there for more, you know, for more um, stories set in that universe. So HBO is very wisely, you know, developing five different offshoots, four or five. And the thing is, they've already made it clear though that this doesn't mean that they're making four or five prequels. This means that they are developing them and then they're going to pull the trigger on the one that they think is best. And they've even said they may not make any of them if they don't sort of meet their criteria, their level of quality. So I'm hoping that every time we hear about one of these bizarre DC movies, similar to what's happening over at Sony with all the different rumors you hear about the movies they're considering... I hope that all we're really hearing is uh, brainstorming sessions that have been leaked to the internet. You know, I'm hoping that we're hearing that all these different movies are basically being mulled around and kicked around. They're kicking the tires. They're looking around. They're asking people, hey, why don't you try to develop this? Or, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let's pursue this. But at the end of the day, they're only going to make maybe one of them. Um, I mean, that's the best I can hope. I I cannot for the life of me imagine that there's much of an upside to a Joker movie that is completely on an island. You know, I I I, I totally see the value in telling stories that are more standalone in nature. That's not my concern. But basically saying that this Joker is in a completely separate canon and continuity than Jared Leto's Joker. And Joker, you know, just having him on screen makes you think about Batman. So if you're not going to have Batman in it, but you're going to make it seem like if there is a Batman, it's different than the one we're seeing in the Justice League movies. 
I I just you're gonna split your audience. You're gonna confuse people. You're gonna the the market's not gonna know how to handle the fact that you've got Jared Leto's Joker in the Suicide Squad spinoffs and sequels, and then you have whoever the fuck it is Todd Phillips hires for this Joker origin story. I I I you know <clears throat> it. To a certain extent, even though I've just yammered on and on about it, it leaves me speechless because I can't believe if, you know, if this is happening, I just want to know what the fuck are you people thinking? What are you thinking? And that's why I try to be optimistic and I try to say something didn't make it to the report. Somebody misunderstood something. This will be canon. And they're just going to introduce the idea of there being different Jokers. That, you know, there was the original one. And then basically when he got older and maybe he was on his deathbed or, I mean, that's taking it too far. But, you know, maybe he basically passed the mantle down. Or, you know, one of his goons who eventually rose up the ranks killed an old Joker and assumed his identity and took the makeup. And then he became the Joker 2.0. And they basically make this idea that the Joker has never just been one man. That, you know, every decade has had its own Joker, depending on who killed the previous one or who was sort of handed the lipstick, so to speak. Um, And in that sense, too, if they're also thinking about doing a passing of the cowl, where, you know, since it seems like Affleck may not be around much longer, and he may just do one standalone Batman film, and what I've been saying is that DC's probably mulling over having a different person be Batman other than Bruce Wayne, have maybe Dick Grayson be Batman. Um, it makes it interesting if, if you make it so that these roles are ones that are, are, are passed on, then it becomes almost this like poetic thing where there's always a Batman and there's always a Joker. And it's like fate. It's almost like what Heath Ledger's Joker said to Batman in The Dark Knight. You know, just about you know how, how, how they essentially sort of balance each other out. That there'll always be one of them there to sort of keep the other in check. Um, so I kind of hope that's where they're going. I hope that somebody fucked up and that this Todd Phillips movie with Scorsese attached to produce is actually a prequel of sorts. And maybe it could even tie in to the Matt Reeves trilogy. Because I've been saying for a while, too, that the best way to sidestep the whole Affleck situation right now is to set the uh, the first Reeves film in the past. Have it be about a young Batman who just, you know, a, a sort of a, a Batman year one type of deal where that way, you know, he's, he's maybe 20, 21 years old and... That would set you now in the early 90s, which kind of lines up with the Joker they would introduce in the Joker origin film, which is supposedly set in the 80s. And then, you know, then now you've got some interesting storylines to sort of explore there when if you eventually sort of cross those two paths. But then again, you got Matt Reeves going around saying how he doesn't want his thing to be setting up anything and that it, it's about Batman and just specifically the characters he wants to cover. So... You know, do I really think that he would then want to cross streams with whatever it is that Phillips and Scorsese are building in a sequel? It doesn't sound likely because Reeves seems to just want to sort of build a wall around Batman here. So uh, I just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking. 
I hope not all of these films get made. I hope only the best one survives. Um, but while we're talking DC, let's talk about the best thing they've produced. Let's talk a little bit about Wonder Woman. There's some news on that front this week. Um, essentially, they've released a, a sequence that's going to be on the Blu-ray for Wonder Woman, which comes out in a couple weeks, which connects the narratives of Wonder Woman and Justice League. kind of shows a bit of a setup going on with Etta Candy. It's called Etta's Mission. And in it, basically, you know, she, she finds Samir, Chief, Nappy, and Charlie in their favorite pub. And um, she lets them know that, you know, their first mission has come in. It's top secret. And it has to do with a mother box. And mother boxes are going to be a big part of what happens in Justice League. Um, just a little bit of, of Bochincha that I mentioned on the Medium Popcorn podcast yesterday is that in case you guys are curious, there's a mother box on Krypton, or there was a mother box on Krypton that we're going to find out about. And when it exploded, it just seems like they're going to do something where the mother box becomes a setup for Brainiac, possibly for Man of Steel 2, maybe for Justice League 2. I don't know which way they're going with it, but um, it seems like the mother box thing is going to sort of factor is going to be a huge, huge deal. And they started talking about it now in this Etta candy mission, uh, Etta's mission tie in on wonder. Woman. Now, while we're on the subject of mother boxes, that obviously brings us to cyborg. Um, listen, th th there's been something that I've been sort of thinking about for the last couple of weeks and I've been meaning to bring up, but let's go ahead and go for it now. Um, yeah, th th there's a lot of constant conversation about how much exactly is Whedon doing to Justice League? How much is he altering it from Snyder's vision? Um, you know, what exactly is getting tweaked? What is the extent of his power when it comes to all this sort of stuff? And the cyborg situation is very interesting, and it really sort of shines a light on this and provides uh, a certain amount of proof about how, how wide reaching the changes are and how much they're basically taking out of Snyder's original film. <clears throat> so uh, just a sort of brief history. Back in March or so, Snyder was uh, showing a rough cut of Justice League to the studio. And it was during the one of those screenings or perhaps the, the singular screening. Um, that's when people said this film's in trouble. You know, that's when Whedon was brought on to, to write new material, and that's what sort of set in motion what would eventually lead to Whedon taking over uh, the entire post-production. Um, you know, aside from Snyder's personal matters, which are obviously tragic, and you know, I will never, ever downplay or demean that, but really, when those screenings happened in March, that's what sort of really set the ball in motion. That's where, you know, the studio and the director seemingly disagreed about what was happening and that's where things had to get tweaked. Um, but back in March of this year, Snyder was quoted as describing Cyborg's subplot and the character itself as, as the heart of the movie. He was really, really invested in the, the work that he had created with, with Ray Fisher uh, based on the Chris Terrio script. And, you know, and he really, you know, uh, the, the cyborg stuff is very important to Mr. Snyder. Um, 
Meanwhile, in recent weeks, we have found out that Cyborg stuff was one of the things that was heavily focused on in the reshoots. I mean, I heard about this about two months ago, just from you know my uh, my back channel sort of sources. But now it you know it was basically confirmed by actor Joe Morton, who plays his father in these films. Um, you know, the, the, there's a quote making the rounds where he says, in no uncertain terms that cyborg stuff got reworked, that they had to lighten the tone, that, you know, that while he in particular didn't have a lot to do, just little minor nips and tucks, that it was, you know, that, that Ray's role, Ray Fisher's role, who plays cyborg, you know, had to get changed because of the tone of the film and that the studio wasn't really happy with the way the film had, had come together, uh, you know, which is what facilitated all these changes. So let's think about that for a second, folks. Snyder saw the cyborg stuff, and he considers the cyborg stuff the heart of this movie. Whedon comes in, and now they're tweaking heavily and modifying the quote-unquote heart of the movie. So if that doesn't make it crystal clear to you that there are some very major disagreements between Mr. Snyder and perhaps Jeff Johns and the overall brass there at DC Entertainment, that I don't know what will. To get all poetic on you, if we're calling the cyborg stuff the heart of the movie, this means that DC Entertainment is allowing Joss Whedon to perform open heart fucking surgery on Zack Snyder's movie. Uh, you know, everyone else wants you to think that maybe he's just, you know, giving it a root canal. But no, he's performing open heart surgery on this bitch. So just keep that in mind. And now let's move on. Um, a couple of major happenings in the horror arena. Uh, you know, we know that right now it's, it's it's pretty cool to have a horror film really capturing the public's attention. You know, usually horror films are a little more niche. Uh, they do really well, but you know, they're they're not really something that really controls the zeitgeist. There's not really a lot of 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 movement in the pop culture sense when it comes to horror movies. But this uh, Stephen King's It remake or I should say this new adaptation of the Stephen King novel, is really got people talking. Like I mentioned earlier, it looks like it's going to have a fairly monstrous opening weekend of like 60 million bucks. Um, and there's just interesting sort of fallout going on here where the... <laughs> this just sounds hilarious to even say this next phrase. But according to the president of the World Clown Association... Uh, Pam Moody, the film is actually having a very negative impact on the ability for actual clowns to get work. Uh, as part of a statement, uh, Moody said, people had school shows and library shows that were canceled. That's very unfortunate. The very public were trying to deliver positive and important messages to aren't getting them. I'm sorry. I just got to laugh at this. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the World Clown Association is basically up in arms right now because Stephen King's It is garnering such popularity and it looks so fucking scary that people are like, nope, I don't want to be around a clown anytime soon. I mean, th this is like the Jaws effect, right? Back in the 70s when Jaws came out, suddenly, you know, beach business started going down because people were legitimately scared of a shark attack. And right now, it is making people everywhere scared of clowns. That is fucking awesome to me. Uh, I heard about that, that, that the Alamo Draft House, 
is making a clown only screening. That's hilarious. I'm just I'm I'm always tickled when horror, which is one of my favorite genres and doesn't really tend to get the love and attention it deserves, you know, when a horror film really crosses over into the mainstream like this and has everyone talking, I'm just oh, that's awesome. Um and while we're on the subject of horror, uh there's you know there's something of a slightly more negative tilt here when it comes to what's going on with the Conjuring franchise. And I'm nervous about this. I love James Wan's uh, Conjuring films. You know, I, I adored the first one. I really liked the second one. Then there was the spinoff Annabelle, which I actually... I mean, listen, I know it wasn't a great movie, but that movie scared the shit out of us. There's a sequence that my, that my wife and I still reference now, even almost a year after seeing the movie, uh, where this woman's trying to get away from this demon, this demonic entity that's coming down the hallway, and she gets into an elevator and hits a button. The door closes just in time. The elevator moves, and when the doors open again, they're still on that level, and now it's getting closer. Then she, then the door closes again, and you think again. It, you see that the that the numbers are moving on the thing. That the elevator is definitely going to a different level, but every time it opens, it's still that dark demonic corridor and the thing is getting closer that shit was fucking we just we 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 were screaming like a couple of little girls it was great so anyway um so i loved conjuring one i really like conjuring two annabelle i got a big kick out of i'm still dying to see annabelle creation because i've heard mixed things but mainly positive things about annabelle creation then there's this one about the nun another offshoot coming out that's based on the scary ass nun that was introduced in the conjuring 2 and then there's apparently also i didn't know this but this is awesome they're doing a uh, another spinoff about the Crooked Man. The Crooked Man was in The Conjuring 2, and that scared the life out of me. Both times I saw that movie, like I've seen Conjuring 2 twice now, um, both times I'm like, The Crooked Man, I want to see more of him, and now they're going to make a Crooked Man movie. Uh, and there's also Conjuring 3, which is in pre-production. So I love this whole Conjuring franchise. I think it's a brilliant concept because Ed and Lorraine Harris are real paranormal investigators. I mean, you know, quote unquote real. But, you know, they believe in this stuff. They have an actual museum in Connecticut that you can go visit. My wife and I keep saying we need to get up there one of these days is drop the kids off with uh, with uh, their grandparents and we're going to take a ride to Connecticut. You know, Ed and Lorraine Harris have a track record and they've been connected to some of the greatest cases ever. You know, the the Amityville horror came from their case. Um, you know, their case files. So I think this th this concept for a franchise is brilliant because it sort of roots it in something real, which really kind of ups the ante in terms of the horror, but also, you know, it it makes all these spin-offs and sequels feel much more organic. It feels less like a cash grab, like a lot of horror franchises tend to get, because this is actually pulling from their case files. You know, the spin-offs, not so much. You know, Annabelle wasn't really based on the real Annabelle story, and neither will The Nun or The Crooked Man, as far as I know. But the actual proper Conjuring movies are all based on case files of theirs. So I love it. But they're in a little bit of trouble, it looks like, because there's a lawsuit, a $900 million lawsuit being filed against Warner Brothers by Mr. Gerald Brittle. Uh, he's the author of a book about 
uh, Ed and Lorraine. Uh, did I say Harris before? Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, he wrote a book about them back in the 70s called The Demonologists. And ever since that time, he actually owns the film rights to their case files. Um, and then, you know, I, I remember re like reading up on this a few months ago. One of the ways in which Warner Brothers was attempting to work around that um, and not give him his due and not make him a producer on the film and all that sort of stuff was they were saying, well, we're not really following their case files. You know, we're, we're really just sort of adapting them and, 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 and giving them the Hollywood treatment. You know, so if you ever want to make a film that really... Um, you know, uh, is based on the hard case files themselves, and you can still do that. What we're doing is different. Ours is more of an adaptation, and we're taking a lot of creative license. But the way Warner Brothers shoots themselves in the foot, and this sort of stuff fascinates me because it's all, you know, legal stuff. And, you know, the way they shoot themselves in the foot is they mention in all the trailers that all this, you know, based on true events, you know, and the movies tend to open with like a little opening text scrawl that basically makes this seem like this is based on real life. Um, hell, in The Conjuring 2, they even showed pictures from the original Enfield uh, poltergeist. So, you know, there's uh, they kind of shoot themselves in the foot. If they're trying to claim, oh, we're not really basing it on their case file, so, you know, we're, we're not stepping on your film rights issue. But then in the movies themselves and in the marketing of the films, they treat it like it's real, that's where now they're getting themselves into trouble. And there's been update, there's been an update on this lawsuit now where now it is going to go to trial. There's a lot all kinds of lawsuits are filed all the time, but they don't always make it to trial. And it has just been ruled that Mr. Gerald Brittle has a strong enough case that they're going to go to trial. So I'm nervous about that because I want these Conjuring movies to continue. And I don't want Warner. What I'm hoping happens is Warner Brothers basically says my bad. Uh, offers this brittle guy a nice little lump sum settlement and then just moves on. I hope to God this doesn't become the sort of situation now where like they have to scrap their plans because Mr. Brittle is like, no, I have the film rights. I'm going to make movies about this stuff. You guys aren't allowed to. Uh, I hope that's not the case because I think the Conjuring stuff is a gold mine. I think it's brilliant uh, in terms of a storytelling conceit. Um, I love uh, having Vera Farmiga there. I just, you know, I, I could not be higher on The Conjuring, and I hope to God that this lawsuit doesn't become an issue. Uh, just another couple of quick hits in terms of news. There's rumors that Beyonce is in talks to sing the next James Bond song, which I'm kind of surprised it hasn't happened yet. If you think about it, you know, she's, you know, one of the big modern day divas. You know, they had Adele on the last one. You know, J James Bond movies always tend to get like that big grand singer. Um, and Beyonce with her sort of diva status, you know, I I'm surprised that it's taken this long for someone to try to get her to sing a Beyonce song. Uh, a Beyonce song? To get her to sing uh, a James Bond song. So if that happens, I will not be shocked and I assume it will be good even though, truth be told, I consider Beyonce to be fairly overrated, and I'm not a huge fan. But, you know, it does seem like a good match, so I can't, I can't argue with, with thought behind that. Um, 
Then there was also, you know, Star Wars The Last Jedi just released a new image of Rey holding uh, like a bow staff type deal. Uh, presumably on Octo preparing for her training sequence with Luke Skywalker. She looks pretty badass in it. Um, I really, you know, The Last Jedi is just, I cannot wait to see this film. I need to see this film. Um, the Star Wars movies are just so important to me. And anytime there's a new image or whatever, I'm just like, yes, there's another Star Wars movie coming. I get very excited. It really connects me to like my childlike glee. Unlike with like the DC stuff, which, you know, I've become so jaded to. So whenever there's new news on that front, I flinch and I get scared as to what it's going to be. Whenever there's new Star Wars stuff, I tend to be fairly excited, especially when it's about like episode eight or episode nine, you know, like a proper entry in the ga- you know, in the galactic saga that's taking place. The offshoots, not so much. Like I mentioned last week, this Han Solo stuff has me nervous. I don't care about a Jabba the Hutt movie. I, I you know, the offshoots, I'm a little more hit or miss on. But this, the Last Jedi, it cannot come soon enough. On the topic of officially released images, we finally got our look at Evangeline Lilly in the uh, in her wasp costume. Uh, I actually really, really like it. it. It looks like, you know, like a legitimate female version of the Ant-Man suit. You know, it's not like some hyper-sexualized, fetishized female superhero costume, you know? Um, it looks good. It looks tactical. It looks, uh, it, it fits into the overall design mold of, of, of what we've seen so far from Ant-Man and from Marvel. So it looks pretty cool, and I'm glad that like they, they ditched that very severe hairstyle she had. This looks much better. Um, so if you haven't seen it yet, uh, go have a look of, at Evangeline Lilly as the Wasp. Um, yeah, I'm I'm in. I'm in. Um, and on the subject of female superheroes, you know, it's it's amazing to me. James Cameron can never seem to stay out of trouble. Uh, people love piling on this guy, and I'm like a staunch defender of his. And you know what? I'm going to defend again. I mean, not really, but uh, within the last few weeks, there was a little bit of an uproar because he said that he didn't really view Wonder Woman as the feminist triumph that everyone is speaking of. Um, You know, in his eyes, just to sort of read between the lines, you know, he still feels like this was like standard superhero 101. And in terms of the female stuff, you know, it's like... They have her all scantily dressed. She's still this beautiful, striking woman, and she's this like idealized. She's like the male version of what we want a super, a, f- a female superhero to be, you know. And and he has somewhat of a leg to stand on there because remember the script was written by men, um, and the whole process was developed by men. Yes, you have Patty Jenkins directing it, but by and large, this was like Zack Snyder's idea of what Wonder Woman should be. And he didn't really feel like it really had much of a female point of view. Um, and that's the thing. Everyone, you know, opinions are subjective. And he just interpreted it differently. I don't think he was shitting on the movie. I think he actually said he liked the movie. He just doesn't necessarily see it as this big, uh, iconic feminist moment. And then, of course, that got everyone coming and yelling and screaming at him. Uh, and Patty Jenkins had to release a statement. Although, to her, to, on, um, to her credit, it wasn't like... She wasn't lashing back at him. It wasn't very defensive or hostile. She just made it, you know, she made her her statement that she disagrees with him. And that, you know, that that Wonder Woman, 
you know, that she's allowed to be sort of this idealized uh, character because that's what Wonder Woman is. Um, so listen, I, I see both sides of it. I just, it, to me, it always amazes me how much people want to hate on James Cameron. To this day, I'll never understand why people were so pissed off about his acceptance speech where he said, I'm the king of the world. That's fucking, it, it, was, just, it was a genuine moment. I, I saw it as kind of cool. Imagine you, you write a movie that becomes one of the biggest movies of all time. It gets nominated for like a fucking truckload of Academy Awards. And then you win. And there with that adrenaline pumping, what do you do? You feel like the king of the world. And that is a line from the movie. So it was a very apropos thing to say. So when he held up the trophy, he said, I'm the king of the world. I just thought, like, yeah, you know, it, he must feel like the king of the world right now. Who's at the top of the world at that moment? You know, you're at the Academy Awards. Your movie has been the talk of, uh, it's been on everyone's mind ever since it came out. And now you've just won the Oscar for best film, best director, all this sort of stuff. You're entitled to just have a little fun with it and quote your movie. Oh, man, I just, I'll never understand why people just want to pile on this guy. There's, uh, anyway, um, I'm going to move along since I know that I'm like in the minority when it comes to wanting to defend Mr. Cameron, but I've loved too many of his films and I feel like I understand him better than a lot of these people who want to tear him down. Um, speaking of uh, understanding people, I'm trying to understand Simon Kinberg, though, because Mr. Kinberg is directing X-Men Dark Phoenix. And by all accounts, it seemed like the X-Men films, the proper X-Men films, were moving more towards a comic book direction. You know, while the early stuff was a little more grounded, you know, a lot of the early, you know, uh, the early Singer films, you know, they, they, they stripped down the, the costumes to make them like black leather. They tried to make it more allegorical, more subtle, less overtly over the top and comic booky. I've been chronicling that if you've watched since X-Men First Class, they've been getting bigger and grander and more colorful and more embracing of their comic book heritage ever since First Class. And then especially in like Days of Future Past with the time travel and, you know, you look at the designs for X-Men Apocalypse and whatever, like they're going bigger and broader and more colorful and more sort of over the top. That's what makes Kinberg's comments about Dark Phoenix a little bit, um, I don't know, a little bit troublesome. So, you know, he, he said, we must find a way to ground it so it's not too intergalactic. He says he wants the film to remain human and emotional on his watch. Hopefully, this only means that they're going to avoid the outer space stuff from the Dark Phoenix saga. Which, mind you, I've never read the books, so I'm not sure how much of it is supposed to take place in space. I don't know if them keeping it here on Earth is going to totally demolish or destroy the chance of that story being told right. I just know that I get worried when I hear words like ground it, you know, and human and emotional. I remember, you know, uh, right around when, when Christopher Nolan started making his Batman films, Everyone started talking about how grounded and dark and gritty things were. And I, I'm kind of happy that things are starting to head in a more colorful, more adventurous sort of direction. So if he wants to ground the Dark Phoenix uh, storyline, 
I'm like, isn't that what we kind of already did? You already had a gimped sort of grounded uh, indirect adaptation when you did X-Men 3. You know, like if you're going to do this storyline, then do everything that it entails. Um, so, yeah, so that's just a little update there from, from Mr. Kinberg on X-Men Dark Phoenix. I hope that all he really means is that they're going to avoid the outer space stuff. Um, and while we're on the subject of grounded superheroes, uh, you know, the Punisher just released a new teaser for his series, you know, the one starring John Bernthal that's coming to Netflix following up on, on his wonderful debut in Daredevil Season 2. And, you know, I mean, it's very sort of, you know, um, vague and cryptic. But it looks like it's definitely dropping this year. There's been a lot of back and forth about what the exact date will be. But now we have the names of all the episodes. We have a date that ends in 17. So it's definitely dropping in these next couple of months. And I'm in, man. John Bernthal is the man. I was very, very intrigued by his Frank Castle. I want to see more of his Punisher. So for those of you who are like concerned about the weight or whatever, you know, it looks like we're not going to have to wait much longer. Um, it looks like it's going to arrive sometime in November and I, I can't wait. That, that may be the first Marvel Netflix series I watched from start to finish since Daredevil season two. Cause I, I've honestly, I've sort of kind of like jumped ship. I don't really watch them anymore. You know, I, I, to this day, I have not finished Luke Cage. I think I stalled out around episode eight or nine and it was fine. I just wasn't all that gripped by it. I stalled out on Iron Fist around episode four, and I haven't even, I don't even feel a pull right now to watch The Defenders, which is sort of astounding because after all these years of build, you'd think I would be totally into seeing, all right, now let's finally see Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist all together. Oh, you got Sigourney Weaver. You'd think I would be like making it a point to sit down and watch this series every night now that it's finally out, and I kind of don't give a damn. I don't know. Maybe it's the word of mouth. I don't know. I just, I kind of don't care. Uh, all I really care about is Daredevil and the Punisher and a little bit about Jessica Jones. In terms of everything else they're trying to set up there in the Marvel Netflix world, I just kind of can't get it up for it. Um, but this Punisher thing, I'm definitely going to watch. Um, and I'm going to sort of close out today on this interesting issue going on with Hellboy. Uh, for those of you who are not in the know uh, you know, last week I reported that Ed Screen or Screen, not sure how you pronounce it, had been cast as Major Ben Daimio, Daimio in um, in Hellboy, the the, you know, the reboot. And now uh, he's he's withdrawn. There was a big sort of backlash. Uh, I didn't even catch it at the time that that Major Ben Daimio is supposed to be uh, Asian or at least half Asian. Um, so there was a big sort of backlash about them whitewashing the character. And to his credit, he basically, he went to Lionsgate and said, I don't want to do it anymore. You know, I, I don't want to be a part of this. He, here's the official statement he released. He said, last week, it was announced that I would be playing Major Ben Damio in the upcoming Hellboy reboot. I accepted the role unaware that the character in the original comics was of mixed Asian heritage. There has been intense conversation and understandable upset since that announcement. And I must do what I feel is right. 
It is clear that representing the character in a culturally accurate way holds significance for people, and that to neglect this, this responsibility would continue a worrying tendency to obscure ethnic minority voices uh, uh, and stories in the arts. I feel it is important to honor and respect that. Therefore, I have decided to step down so the role can be cast appropriately." Representation of ethnic diversity is important, especially to me as I have a mixed heritage family. It is our responsibility to make moral decisions in difficult times and to give voice to inclusivity. It is my hope that one day these discussions will become less necessary and that we can help make equal representation in the arts a reality. I am sad to leave Hellboy, but if this decision brings us closer to that day, it is worth it. I hope it makes a difference. With love and hope, Ed Screen. Uh, and then Lionsgate released a statement as, as well, saying, Ed came to us and felt very strongly about this. We fully support his unselfish decision. It was not our intent to be insensitive to issues of authenticity and ethnicity, and we will look to recast the part with an actor more consistent with the character in the source material. Um so, hey, I mean, that's all pretty big. And I, I think this is probably the best way this sort of situation has been handled. Uh, rather than getting, like, defensive about it, rather than basically saying, well, whatever, deal with it, we're proceeding as planned or whatever, uh, like other projects have done. You know, like, you know, I think about Gods of Egypt and, and the way the director sort of came at people about that. Even Ghost in the Shell, there was a lot of this, like you know, indirect, like we're apologizing for it, but we're doing it anyway, and it's sort of okay, but we get why you're upset. This, to me, is the best way this issue has, has ever been dealt with. Um, that said, you know, as usual, I'm sort of on the outskirts with this stuff because I am a minority. I'm a minority in the arts. I'm a Cuban, Puerto Rican, uh, and I just... I'm, I'm that minority that doesn't notice these kinds of things. Um, you know, it, it didn't it didn't phase me one bit when he was cast. That's why I didn't even mention the whole thing about the characters, you know, being traditionally drawn as being uh, mixed or, or Asian in some form. Because to me, it was just, oh, cool, Ed Green's an interesting actor. All I could think about was he was in Deadpool and all the great jokes and memes about Francis. And I thought, oh, that's a great little casting job. I could see why Lionsgate would want him. You know, he was just in one of the most popular comic book films of the last several years. You know, Deadpool was a sensation when it came out last year. So Lionsgate wanting to sort of jump on that and say, you know, hey, you know, let, let's get a Deadpool person to be in our movie. It made perfect sense to me. But now I can see, you know, I can understand why people feel the way they do. And with that in mind, it looks like they're handling this the absolute best way possible. It's a shame. I, it, it would be cool if they like, if he switched to a different character in the movie, if there is another role there for him. But, um, you know, it looks like as, as far as for, for people who care about this issue, I think Mr. Scrain, I think Lionsgate have done an absolutely exemplary job of getting out in front of this story and rectifying it. Um, by the way, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Lionsgate who said, like, let, let's just make it, let, let's do things this way. I don't want to pull the rug out from Mr. Scrain's uh, 
nice. I'm just, I'm just being devil's advocate here. But like in terms of trying to get out in front of the PR of all this, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if like some of this was sort of staged to be like, all right, let, let's do it this way because then we all look really good. But that's just the fucking cynic in me. <laughs> Either way, they did a brilliant job. Um, and that's kind of it for this week. You know, th- there's not a lot of news. Um, there's no movies to get excited about. Next week, we're going to spend some time uh, getting ready to see It. Uh, and later this week, we're going to have the, the special L fanboy event, the, uh, the curious case of Benjamin Affleck. But in terms of news stories this week, things are a little light. We're in a quiet time right now. You know, the only other, other thing I could really talk to you guys about is the Game of Thrones finale. And that was still less than 48 hours ago. So I don't really want to discuss it just yet. Um, you know, some numbers have already come out. They say it was the most watched episode in the show's history. So, you know, kudos to HBO and the people running that show that it's just getting bigger and better. Uh, it's very rare that seven seasons in, it, it's the free, it's dominating the world the way, you know, the way this, the way this series is. Um, but yeah, so there really isn't much more to say. So uh, if you listen to this and you enjoyed it, please get over to El Fanboy on iTunes and uh, leave me some reviews. Uh, I'm still at a perfect five stars, but I've been sort of stagnant at the same amount of reviews. If you go and you write me something, I will read it on the air and I will thank you profusely for all to hear because, uh, you know, every time I get a five star rating, it moves me up in the iTunes rankings. It exposes me to new audience members and I want this thing to grow. And like I said, in September, when I have all this free time on my hands because my son, my three-year-old is going to start nursery school and my daughter is going to first grade. So during the week, I'm going to have a lot of free time to create content. I haven't made any YouTube videos in a while. I'm working on some video essays. I got tons of stuff I want to do for you. So if you guys can just help continue to grow the brand and spread the word, that would be amazing. Something that's going to be cool about this curious case of Benjamin Affleck thing is that you don't have to have heard anything I've ever done. So it's going to be a good entry level sort of thing. Even if no one listens to my main podcast, if you check this out, you know you don't need to have any sort of history with me. You're, th- th- this thing will stand on its own. So you can pass this on to DC friends of yours and say, check this out. You know, because I know for me, whenever people tell me to check something out and it's something that's already like in progress, like, well, I can't watch this thing. I have to watch the three years that led up to it. Uh, this thing that I'm working on will be standalone. <sighs> All right, guys. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. I hope you have a wonderful week. If you have any questions for me, please tweet them to hashtag Elfanboy. And uh, until next week, adios. <laughs>